0: To the silver screen. Welcome, listeners, to
1: my birthday pick. Happy birthday, Corbin. Thanks, Alan. So it's not quite my birthday. It's very close. This My birthday is in just a couple days. This is coming out the 8th. My birthday is the 11th. So just right before it, right in time, actually. And we did keep it a secret what we were reviewing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've read the title, you know what we're talking about.
2: Today we are reviewing Twelve Angry Men. That's right, and it totally wasn't chosen a few days before hitting record. No, <laughs> I almost guarantee it that it didn't happen the exact same way that my birthday pick did. It was completely pre-planned
1: a year in advance. Exactly. Uh, surprise! Just kidding. Twelve Angry Men. I there was a couple movies I was considering. Um, I was considering this may give you an insight into what we might review in future years. Considering maybe Mildred Pierce, A Face in the Crowd, which just so happened to come out the same year as mm-hmm. this movie. Yep. Um, there was a couple others that I was thinking about. But, uh, you know, okay. So I was also thinking about maybe Hotel Rwanda, Field of Dreams, Equilibrium, Legends of the Fall. There has been movies throughout my life so far. That they have just hit me. And as soon as I see them, I'm like, okay, that's, that's my new favorite movie. Mm-hmm. Um, we did it with Secondhand Lions was my first birthday pick. Last year, King Kong, the 1933 version, will probably just be my penultimate favorite forever. Um, this one I saw with my dad. Uh, he showed it to me a quite, I don't know, many, many years ago, and I've always been into black and white movies, and uh, so that didn't bother me whatsoever, but I was just riveted by the drama, and I was immediately pulled into this movie.
2: Yeah, this was a film that I didn't actually get to see until, hmm, I'm trying to think of what year it was. Um, I know I was definitely in college when I was able to see this. So I'm pretty new to it, all things considered. It was no more than probably about a handful of years ago from this recording. So this is relatively new to me. I watched it because I think it was probably on Amazon Prime or something like that. And and I I knew that I needed to check it out. And I knew that you had said that it was one of your favorites. Um, so yeah, I finally ended up watching it years ago, years later in my life uh, when I was in college, but yeah, I remember being also like, holy cow, like riveted by it at the time as well when I first watched it.
1: Now we both own the Criterion, right? Yeah, that
2: we do. Um, when did you get your copy? Who? um, hmm, let me think about this for a minute. I know I got it. It was definitely when it was on, there was like a discount. Mm-hmm. Like the figure like the half off sale. I think I got it when it was on a Criterion Flash sale, if I'm not mistaken. Um, otherwise it would have definitely come from Barnes and Noble. But that's no more than a year or two old itself. Yeah, yours was fairly recent. Mm-hmm. I
1: just got mine from my parents last Christmas. There's just a couple of criterions I've always been wanting to get. So I'm happy I finally owned this movie. I never owned it before. I have seen it a few times throughout the year since I originally saw it. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy to own it in my collection. The Criterion Collection is wonderful with their bonus features. So if you are going to pick this up, listeners, you want to do a deep dive into it, then I definitely recommend the Criterion Collection. Also, something fascinating about that one is it comes with the TV version, which I didn't even know was a thing. So the TV version is also written by Reginald Rose, who adapted his own teleplay into a screenplay. And Reginald Rose, uh, this came out in 1954 on, I I want to say CBS. It was um, the one studio came out at 10 o'clock and it was live. It was live TV, just like mm. seeing a live stage play. And um, that was kind of crazy because you have to remember this movie came out Um, Wednesday, April 10th, 1957. Right. No such thing in the world as reruns, as the video store, as any kind of owning physical media. Maybe, maybe you would get lucky and your theater would show the movie again. But if you didn't see it in its theatrical run, they wouldn't start putting uh, movies onto TV for quite a while. Definitely not in 57. So this was kind of a big deal yeah, to see a movie like that.
2: Exactly. And also, it was kind of a big deal to even own a television because at the <laughs> time, and back in '57, television was a, pretty much a brand new thing. And uh, yeah. getting one in the household, you know, you, you were pretty lucky to get one of those, as evidenced by, uh, by Back to the Future.
1: Yeah, so it's very interesting um, because at the beginning of the 50s, only 9% of households had TVs, mm-hmm. whereas at the end of the decade, 90% did because people would come to work the next day and talk about the dramas. They they had the news. They had it all right there. And so what made 12 Angry Men very interesting to people, it also was uh, very big at the Emmys. Oh, I believe it. So the Emmys that it won were best series of the year. Um, Reginald Rose won for writing, and Robert Cummings, who plays Henry Fonda's role in the TV version, he won for acting. Gotcha. Um, so it was a really big deal. If you don't know who Robert Cummings is, he's the lead in Saboteur, um, Hitch- Hitchcock movie. He was in one other Hitchcock, uh, crap. I don't remember. Anyways, um, this was very interesting for TV, and it was also one of the first times that a TV show was going to be adapted to the big screen now sometimes we kind of see that in reverse where a Mm -hmm. movie will get a tv show in order to expand upon it um this wasn't the first one there was another one i want to say with ernest borgnine called marty that came before it and then rod serling who uh, would go on to do the twilight zone he also um did a one called patterns uh, which is on amazon prime right now and i'm really want to see it Mm -hmm. um so those were um, tv shows that were brought to the big screen as movies and united artists picked those up um and thanks to henry fonda for producing it and pushing it henry fonda for those of you don't know who is it was a huge actor yeah he was a big deal so getting him onto this project honestly that's probably the only reason it was able to come to the big screen was because of henry fonda Um, The studio didn't want to get too risky with it, though,
2: and so they gave it a super small budget of $350,000. Right, which is different than what it would be costing nowadays, like it wouldn't cost $350,000 $350,000 today no. would be more than that, of course. Right. Um, so, but yeah, and this is also uh, the this is the, the director's like first big feature, right? He's done pretty much all TV up until this point. That, that's correct, right?
1: Yes. So Sidney Lumet had only done television right. at this point. And this was his directorial debut. And the reason he was brought on to direct is because he had worked with Reginald Rose. Um, they had done another um, one for TV called um, something something in a temporary town it's on the criterion disc so i'd be curious to watch it gotcha they'd work together so Sidney lumet is also very young at this point and he is kind of a big deal when he comes on the scene because he gets nominated for best director which is crazy of the year (laughs) which is nuts (laughs) it is nuts he also gets nominated for the film gets nominated for best picture
2: which is again insane because, especially for a first-time director to come on the scene, next thing he knows, his movie uh, gets Best Picture. Um, is crazy. That's you don't ever really see that.
1: <laughs> you really don't. Um, sometimes uh, directors get it on their second or third try, like mm-hmm. Shyamalan or Damien Chazelle, but not on their first try. So th- the movie didn't win any of those. Uh, Bridge Over the River Choir won all three. Gotcha. Um, Also, if I didn't mention, Reginald Rose was nominated for adapted screenplay, which is kind of funny because it was based on his original screenplay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nevertheless, it didn't get it. Um, Sidney Lumet went on to be a pretty big deal. He did a couple Al Pacino movies, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon. He also did Network, which we've talked about Network on here before. Mm -hmm. Haven't reviewed it yet. But Network was also big at the Academy Awards, nominated for Best Picture of the Year and whatnot. So it's also very interesting that a lot of this cast was mostly mostly TV actors.
2: And that would make sense. I mean, coming from a director who's primarily only done TV and it's the 50s, I guess it makes sense that most of the actors that end up playing the lead roles in this in his first film would also be you know tv actors
1: yeah so that's something that was audiences were used to seeing the big stars on the screen and mm-hmm. um, the other thing audiences were used to um was remember this is the 50s there were westerns coming out we're getting into the grand scale of what cinema could be with like lawrence of arabia is going to be coming up pretty soon dr Zhivago. Um, Epics had already been a thing clearly with Gone with the Wind in 39. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, one other thing I forgot to mention about the budget is this was very, even for um, 1957, this was a small budget because King Kong, which we reviewed last year, had a budget of $670,000. Right. And that came out, I don't know, what, 30, 20 years before it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a big difference. Just a couple other notes about who was involved with the movie. Boris Kaufman, who is an Oscar-winning director of photography. He did it uh, with this one. He would go on to work with Lumet in seven of his films. And the other interesting thing to note is that this is a shift away from the Hollywood influence and studio system. This was actually shot in New York. And... Uh, that was interesting because Hollywood was kind of this, the epicenter of it all. Um, the other thing to notice is that this was before the civil rights era, very much coming beforehand. Now we reviewed night of the living dead, which was taking place right around the civil rights era. So if you want a movie that kind of might have somewhat of a commentary on that, we we reviewed that one um but nevertheless this movie also kind of deals with that kind of stuff as well like social issues urban settings right and moral decay now the one last thing that i want to state that i just i have to really drive this home is because tv is so big in our lifetime right now in 2021 tv is huge yeah so remember the original teleplay was broadcast after I Love Lucy. Huh. And everybody, you know, loved their sitcoms. That's mostly what TV was. But that introduced a blend of a play and a movie. And it's all done in real time. That's that's very difficult to pull off, but exciting. And it's also free. This is broadcast over the antennas. So people, for once, didn't have to get out of their homes, get out of their cars, They didn't have to pay for a price of admission. They were able to see quality drama at home. So you have to understand also that procedurals were not really a thing back then, but this is what did inspire like Law & Order or even John Grisham novels and movies and what we know today as fascination with crime and law. This was kind of the birth of that in a way, and this is really what propelled it into... Popular fascination at the time, and we can see it's followed since. I mean, people are still obsessed with crime shows.
2: Oh, yeah. I know, like, the 90s and into the early 2000s were crime shows were crazy. They went, they did crazy on the air, right? Now, of course, we still get them now. Um, but those, I remember that being around the time when things were like. Going nuts like X Files, um, Cops is one of them, uh, like forensic files, like things like that. Like those are all shows that you could still kind of maybe stem back, and of course Law and Order, um, stem back to Toehangemin when it was really when it was put up on the air.
1: Now, the one other thing that I should note about Cindy Lumet before we go on to how this film was received financially at the time in the box office by critics, and how it is today, Lumet had nothing to do with the original TV version. Gotcha. Nothing at all. Uh, the original version was directed by Franklin J. Schaeffer, who would go on to direct Planet of the Apes. Ah. And he would go on to win the Best Directing Oscar for Patton. Gotcha. So, nevertheless, it's uh, they didn't bring him back <laughs> to direct <laughs> this one. Not that he wasn't good enough, but Lumet was also very young at the time and was going to bring something different. Now, this movie was no blockbuster. When it came out,
2: I wondered. You know, I I, there are a lot of times where you know films that are today in today's world, films that are regarded as some of the greatest in history. A great example would be *It's Wonderful Life*. um, Did not do so great in the box office when it was first released.
1: Yeah, and uh, 57 was kind of an interesting year for movies. It's hard to point to one that would be a really big blockbuster, I would say. Mm -hmm. I would say it's probably Bridge Over the River Kwai. Uh, That was a World War II movie that really caught people's attention. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the other ones, it's funny, we just talked about um, The Seventh Seal. Yeah. In Bogus Journey, it came out the same year as this one. Oh, that's right. Um, A little director you may have heard of, Stanley Kubrick. Well, put out a <laughs> put out another war film called Pass of Glory. Mm-hmm. Um, I have yet to see it, but it, Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries. Okay, so it is really cool to see. Um, Ingmar Bergman also did The Seventh Seal, so I guess he was amazing in yeah. '57. But pretty much, two <laughs> movies. Yeah. Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. Um, so it's very interesting to see. Also in '57, a lot of uh, foreign directors mm-hmm. who had become very famous were also coming into their own um elia kazan's a face in the crowd um yep. came out this year he had recently also done um on the waterfront with marlon brando and um lee j cobb who was in this movie yeah um knights knights in cabiria Federico fellini so you can see it's kind of the year of the foreign yeah. uh, film director The only other one that I could think of that probably really caught audiences' attention and has still stayed over today, there's two of them, Uh, 310 to Yuma. Mm -hmm. I have yet to see that movie. That was the Delmer Dave's film. And then, of course, everybody probably has heard of Old Yeller. Oh, yeah. So, as I was saying, it's no blockbuster. I mean, despite starring Henry Fonda, who was a really big deal. He had done Grapes of Wrath. He had done all kinds of stuff. People knew him. Um, but the thing is, it, it was really kind of hard to pitch it to the studio. The pitch is 12 sweaty men sit around and discuss morality. Oh, and it's all in black and white. I could see why that would be hard to get a studio on board. <laughs> black and white movies at this point were pretty much on their way out. Mm-hmm. I think all of the ones I just named you except for Old Yeller were in black and white. But nevertheless... Audiences were very much now intrigued with color. Yeah. Um, Color would not come to TV for a while, but think back to The Wizard of Oz in the 30s. That was in color.
2: Yeah, that was one of the very few films back in 39 or even around 39 that was in color.
1: Yes. So color was, I mean, it was, I believe it was probably cheaper to shoot this in black and white would be my guess. Yeah, they would have been. Um, even at the Academy Awards, they had two separate categories for cinematography, one for black and white and one for color. Right. So nevertheless, this was a bit of a hard pitch and it, it didn't really catch on. This really took a long time to catch on as a classic. It wasn't until 2007 that the Library of Congress selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry. And- even Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor said it influenced her to pursue a career in law. So it did take a while to really come to audiences' attention. Yeah. Um, people now, according to the IMDb Top 250, regard it as the fifth greatest film of all time.
2: Which is that's pretty crazy. It's <laughs> really high up
1: there. It's really high up there, and. On Letterbox, I, this is one of the highest Letterbox ratings I've seen. Four point five, almost perfect.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's wow. Yeah, that's really high. It has a straight nine on IMDb. Mm-hmm. The last time we talked about it, a movie that was even close to this would have been The Dark Knight, which was at a nine, I think, as well. Yeah, it, yeah, very close.
1: Dark Knight is like four on IMDb, two fifty something like that. Mm-hmm. So they're really close.
2: Yeah, they're really, really close.
1: It has a ninety six metascore
2: i'm a little bit surprised it's not a 100 but of course metascore being you know a bit more critical than the others that we usually look at i can understand why but still that's really really high
1: speaking of 100 it does have a 100 certified fresh on rotten tomatoes
2: yeah that's not too big of a surprise
1: to me <laughs> but yes that's about right so and a 97 percent audience score so listeners mm-hmm. if you haven't figured it out already This isn't a bad movie. (laughs) Yeah. Regarded as one of the greats. Of course, of course, it's subjective. Or, excuse me, subjective. No, no, I think it's objective. (laughs) (laughs) It's objective. But um, nevertheless, yeah, I don't have any box office information. I mean, nobody's tracking that in 57.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those films where, I mean, we could even talk about, like, we could try to talk about, like, how much money he made in the box office, what placement it was in, if we had those numbers, (laughs) which we don't. So.
1: The best I can tell you was what beat it at the Academy Awards. I would tell you some popularity and what other movies were out at the time. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, Alan, it's 1957. You see this trailer. Now, keep in mind, listeners, trailers in the 50s are way different than trailers very, now. <laughs> yes, very, very different. But nevertheless, you see this trailer. Are you going to go see it? Ah. Uh,
2: I don't know. Oh, great. <laughs> um, I don't know, because if I were living back in the 50s, and I were, you know, obviously in tune with the culture of the 50s, I would be skeptical on what a courtroom drama would bring to the big screen, right? Maybe it would change if, you know, I, of course, had more context to what life was like back then, but... I don't know. I would be skeptical going in. If I would be skeptical to see it in the theater, um, because it doesn't look too appetizing to me. Mm -hmm. Um, A bunch of guys young in a a courtroom. Uh, So probably not.
1: Yeah, and you're exactly right. That's exactly what audiences were thinking back then, and that's the reason it really wasn't too much of a success. At the theaters, because people were saying, didn't I just see this for free a couple mm-hmm. of years ago? So, yeah, people were thinking, if I want to see something like this, I can see it at home. People go to theaters for a grand spectacle. Right. And so this was very much a pioneer in its time because now we talk about movies all the time that are intimate dramas and they're the Academy Awards and people talk about them. For me, I didn't find the trailer very compelling. It does reveal major plot points. And to me, it doesn't really make sense as to how this is going to be a worthy plot for me to spend what? How long is this movie? It's not a very long movie. It's like an hour and 36 or some minutes or something like that. Exactly. It's 96 minutes long. So it's not very long. Mm-hmm. It's actually the shortest movie review for my birthday. Sure enough. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nevertheless, neither of us are probably going to be seeing this in theaters
2: Mm -hmm. when we couldn't wait for home video because it wasn't a thing that's true i guess we would have missed out that's true (laughs) and i mean at the same time you know we kind of we kind of mentioned this uh when we talked about you know its pitch how do you market something like this right it's hard to market something like this without you know focusing on a very niche crowd, one that wants to go in looking for a movie that's based solely around morality and the ethics of, you know, whether or not they should or shouldn't pay attention to this, tri- to this trial or what have you, right? It's kind of a hard movie to sell to people and for people to understand, you know, why it would be even close to important to anybody. It's one of those things where it's just, it's kind of hard, you know, to make that judgment.
1: Well, listeners, if you haven't seen 12 Angry Men, which I highly recommend that you do before we spoil this, because there are some great twists in this movie, Mm -hmm. go check it out. I mean, yeah, not that long ago, it was streaming on Prime, so it's not too hard to find, thankfully. So go ahead, check out the movie, and then come back and click play, and we'll be ready to talk about it. (laughs) Twelve jurors deliberate the guilt or innocence of one teenage male accused of murdering his father. Juror 8, played by Henry Fonda, is the only one to not vote guilty, initially. But through a series of smart contemplations, one by one, each juror
2: changes their vote to not guilty. You know, Corbin, (laughs) I mean, at least you get a break, right? At least you get a break from not having to dissect very complex plots like with Tenet or with movies from ye old past that we've done in the last few weeks. So at least you get a bit of a break, especially on your birthday pick, to do one that's relatively simple to do. (laughs) It's two lines,
1: almost three lines, double spaced.
2: Yep. So I guess that tells you how long it really was.
1: Of course I could have. Gave you a complete rundown of the plot, but that's where we're about to discuss the movie. Right. So I thought it would be better just to give you a a bird's eye view, and now we are going to jump into it. Right. So one of the immediate things that strikes me about this movie is it's not quite all-in-one setting, but Mm -hmm. it primarily is. I counted – the movie begins outside of the courthouse. Right. Then we go into a hallway, courtroom – Deliberate like the jury's deliberation room, bathroom, and then outside the courthouse, which kind of doesn't really count since we've already been there. So there's only five settings. In the right. entire movie,
2: yeah, and they're all pretty much in the exact same place, right? They don't really move right. too far outside, you know, the courthouse itself. Yes. So, and that's kind of one of its—that's like like one of the big selling factors nowadays is essentially, for the most part, this all takes place in one in one place, right? Mm-hmm. It's all one essentially just one long scene, right? It, you can pretty much build it as that. It's not completely true, but the meat of the story really pretty much is because we have maybe like a minute or two that we spend outside of the deliberation room. But other than that, it's pretty much all taking place within that room. So yeah, that's one of the big selling points I know is that it's essentially one long scene and just almost playing out in real time in one place. And that's kind of funny
1: because that's also why the studio was like, okay, well, we're not going to give you a very big budget then mm-hmm. if you're just going to have it in pretty much one place. <laughs> Sidney Lumet prided himself being able to come in under budget even while working with TV. So he came in $60,000 under budget. Well, there you go. <laughs> he also finished the film early mm-hmm. because working on TV, he had learned some techniques that it enabled him to get this movie done faster. Gotcha. So basically there are four walls that we see. So with each shot, let shots that are focused on wall one do all of those shots now. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to keep changing the setup of the equipment. Wall two, do all of those shots. So they basically save themselves time moving the equipment by just doing the shots with each wall. Right. Well, which, is, that- which is very interesting.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And does that would definitely help um, and also because it is just such a simple movie, right? This is yeah. one of those movies where it, it's kind of beautiful in how simple it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, like you just said in the plot summary, it literally is just a bunch of guys uh, sitting in a room discussing things. Like right? that's literally the whole movie, right? So that kind of plays into like almost every aspect is just, it is just very simple. It's a very simple film to to talk about and understand Um, because of what setting it is going for, right? So given that you have a TV director, almost like it's a perfect mishmash of everything Mm -hmm. for him, at least, because it is just so simple. You can get it done and work in easily those tricks that you've learned by doing TV.
1: It really is. And I think there's also a lot of simplicity to how the film is shot with the cinematography, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot to it that I think on your first watching, you probably wouldn't catch There's a lot to digest. So the way I took it is the first shot is a pan up of these giant pillars, which I think is great. I think that signifies the magnitude of the institution. And then the interior is once we get to the interior before the courtroom, that's one shot Uh, moving through the halls. We see faces celebration worry. We wonder who is our character. And it does give us a feeling of the place. And then we're told the situation by the judge, laid out the ground rules that these 12 men, it's 12 or nothing. They have to be in agreement. Right. Because they are handing out a death sentence onto this young man. And um it's a kind of ironic because the judge says um, that they have a grave responsibility to do this. Mm-hmm. And he says it's so nonchalantly. Oh yeah,
2: yeah, exactly.
1: Um, which is kind of a f- almost a false setup for what's to come. And especially because once the jurors vote, they all just seem to be like, let's just vote and go home. Right. We get it. But then we do only see one shot of this seemingly innocent face of this young man. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate the transition because it's burned into the room, how it just fades there there because his presence will his absent presence will loom large and we will continue to think about this young person in our mind
2: right and it also kind of shows because when they do dissolve from him sitting there on the on the table and they dissolve to the room while well, the room is, at the time, empty, you do get to also understand that, you know, whatever takes place in this room is essentially what's going to be his future, right? So it's kind of cool to see because they do a crossfade and then they just stop, right? You can kind of see both of them at the same time for a little bit. And then, of course, they move all the way to the end of the room. But yeah, it does kind of set up like, it's kind of almost like a, di- a dichotomy, right? Because the judge, like you said, is kind of nonchalant with how he wants to How he says, yeah, you guys are the ones who are going to face this grave responsibility, right? So he's kind of like, it's like he's done this a million times, right? Yeah. But then when we cut to, or I guess more like a pan, we pan and look at the actual kid who's on trial, and we we transition to that room. It kind of sets up this strange feeling because where we've gone from one from one emotion where we don't don't really care to another emotion where it's like, okay, well, now we know that this this guy's life is going to essentially depend upon what's going to happen and what the decision is made up in this room.
1: Now, I want to know what you think of them showing the accused because he's never seen in the TV version, do you think that impacts our feelings on him one way or another? Um, Because I found it interesting in the TV version, we never see him. And I almost think that I almost like that a little better Mm -hmm. because it's like, what if you had to deliberate whether someone lives or dies and you've never seen him? And I think that place to... The deeper subtext is that these people see him, but they don't really know him. Right. So I want to know what you think of. We do see him in this
2: one. Yeah, I, I guess I would have to also see the TV version to know, you know, know how they handle it. But um, I do think that the way that they do handle it here in the actual film or the full length feature v- version of this of this uh, plot, mm-hmm. um, I, I do think that they the way that because they show him, it does again set up you know, how, I guess, how much of a responsibility there really is with these men, right? It does kind of help show that, you know, it's this young kid's life who's at stake. And we do get to find out through the course of what happens in the next, oh, hour and a half or so, um, you know, what his life was and what he did or what happened to him um, to to leave him at this, to leave him into this where he's at currently. So I think that it was a good choice to show him because it also show it also kind of, we also get to put a, like, we get to put a, a face to you know what's currently happening, what what uh, trial is currently happening to some person, right? We do get kind of get to see you know the actual person who this is all happening to. So I, I do like that they show it mostly, mostly for that reason to see, for a, for a viewer at least, um, we do get to see who exactly this is happening to. That's really all the information that we're given at the time. It's just that we know we can put the pieces together. This is the guy who committed the crime, apparently. Um, but that's about as far as we know, everything else, every, all the uh, exposition is going to come inside this room.
1: Right. Now I want to know what you think, because we never see his face again, even when they deliver the not guilty. We never see them deliver the verdict. That's true. Um, we never see his face. We never see the elation on his face. What do
2: you think? Do you think that we're missing out or not? I don't think so. Um, because I think we're given enough context to know, um, because, again, it it's more or less just set up, at least from what I'm seeing, it's more or less just set up to show, to tell the audience that, you know, this is the man's life at stake, right? And so when we get to the end where they don't really show the final verdict being given out, I don't think that they necessarily need to show it, right? What? What they do explain later on after we've had uh, all the discussion in the room isn't necessarily, you know, important because all the important stuff that's happened, happened inside that room and we were already shown that. So, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily important to show the verdicts come out in the very end. I think it's the way that I think the way that it's edited does a good job at showing the most important parts that need to be showed and leaving everything else just, you know, we can put the pieces together later.
1: Yeah, and I agree, because I think showing that would take the focus off of the, what's important here in this plot. Yeah. And it's not really this young man, even though we see him here in the beginning. The focus is on these 12 characters and kind of their arc of uh, some of them have redemption some of them learn to look at the world in new ways so what's most important is that we end with them but you know i really do like the last shot of the movie where it is providing a downward angle a different angle it's a new perspective um we haven't quite got to that part yet but because it does rain almost halfway through the movie somewhere around there Mm -hmm. but it it nevertheless signifies these characters are going out into a freshly washed world with fresh perspectives. And there's right. also this relief of tension because it's been so hot. And now the tension is slowly like been letting off. Um, so I think it's very important, at least in the beginning to call out the similarities to the first and the last shot of the movie. Um, and then of course you get to see life has gone on, whereas their life up there was very much put on hold. Mm-hmm. They couldn't go to a baseball game. There weren't going to be home for dinner. Things like that, and it almost felt like time stood still for them, and it really draws in the importance that up in this little room, people debate the life and death of an individual they've never even met before.
2: Right, and we do, like just like the uh, judge explained at the very beginning, right, it, it, while it is kind of played off of the shoulder, Um, in the very beginning where he says, you have a grave responsibility, uh, we do get to see how there's only really one guy who really takes it seriously, right? Right. And he's the one who says, well, I don't know if he really is guilty because there is a lack of evidence. But everyone else has just been kind of blind to it, um, especially uh the i forget i forget what number he is what juror he is in the in the credits but it's the guy who has a son and has been on many juries beforehand right Um, he's the most stubborn of all of them yep um juror juror three yeah that's it so juror three is the one who is of course the one who takes the most time to actually change his answer he's the last one to finally change it over and say that he's not guilty Mm -hmm. um because, and of course, these two characters, Juror 3 and Juror 8, are complete opposites of each other, right? right. And so it makes sense. So we do get to see, like, you know, while it, it kind of starts off apathetically, both from uh, the judge and then also from Juror 3, mm-hmm. and from some of the others as well, we do get to see that, you know, because of Juror number 8, who takes it just a little bit more seriously and begins to question, you know, what evidence there is and they essentially put the entire trial on trial there in the room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we do get to see how, you know, it's it's not as simple as you may think, right? And that kind of is more, it's kind of a funny thing because we are talking earlier about how simple and how beautiful it's, its simplicity really is. We do kind of get to see that while the story and the things around it are rather simple, like you can explain this whole movie in a sentence like you just did, um, the actual substance to it and the actual morality that they talk about and discuss in this movie is not quite that same way. Um, and I think that's where this movie does shine as uh, shine as bright as it does, is because it, the most important aspect of this film is not as simple as the rest of it.
1: Yeah. And we do learn bits and pieces of who these characters are through talking to each other, through the way they make judgments or even a little bit of backstory going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you go into the movie, you realize that the characters are arranged in numerical order around the table. Martin Balsam is juror one. We've reviewed him. He was detective Arbogast in psycho. Okay. Yeah. So I, I always like to see him here in this movie and mm. he is all Mr. Nonchalant, like, okay, I'll just go with the flow. <laughs> yeah. With everything. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, something, so I did write down a, something about most all of them um i skipped juror six we'll talk about him in a minute <laughs> <laughs> um but nevertheless there's little bits and pieces just to talk about with each of them um juror eight is henry fonda the main character pretty much right i like to learn that he's actually an architect so that helps us realize he can see the bigger picture and he pays attention to the little details mm-hmm. as an architect would um juror two is john fiedler who is the voice of piglet and i think he represents the person that isn't hostile to other people but nevertheless he does seem to be a bit of a follower he just kind of goes along with popular opinion without really kind of being a leader but right. nevertheless it's cool to see his character grow into a leader
2: right and he right. does and if i'm a yeah, and he's also the same guy who this is like his first time being on a jury, right? Right. And so he's also like, in terms of like how experienced they are, he is the youngest out of all of them in, in this area.
1: I gotta say maybe my, probably my favorite character in this movie, the most memorable for me, is juror three, Lee J. Cobb, mm-hmm. who is this crazy loud mouth, as Alan said, he sat on many juries. Nobody really likes him in the room. Um, Lee J. Cobb, we didn't, re- we watched it together but we didn't re- review it um he's the detective in the exorcist oh okay i think yeah um he was also in the waterfront previously lee J. Cobb, love him if you ever get to see his performance in death of a salesman the play please check it out it's great um he just has this really loud voice really bombastic and intrusive about him yeah um, you know, I just crack up when he's always butting in and the old man juror 9 yells at him, "I'm currently talking to the gentleman sitting oh, next yeah. to you." Yeah. <laughs> and juror 2 calls him a loudmouth. Um, the other juror, juror that is very memorable to me is EG Marshall, who is this really cold, analytic guy. That's how he approaches everything with no mm. emotion. Uh he also never sweats, which is interesting to keep in mind. Right. Um he he is um plays in Willy Wonka does he really he does he plays the Willy Wonka's um adversary but you spoiler alert
0: for Willy Wonka
1: <laughs> he was actually working for him the whole time okay I can't remember his name uh he's got a cool name though mm-hmm. um he also has an answer to everything um Juratin it gives a really good performance Ed Bagley he I like that he's outwardly sick signifying his moral condition is also not right uh and he's the real bigot of the group and it's interesting that he sits next to a naturalized citizen. Yeah. So this guy's from a foreign country but uh, juror 11 played by George Voskovec who um reprises his role from the TV version. Oh, does he? He does. Yeah, um I do really like his character has some really shrewd insight about 50 minutes into the movie. He Right. I really appreciate that he doesn't take the American justice system for granted Mm -hmm. because everybody else are just born Americans and it really kind of depicts them as just like they take it all for granted and it means nothing to them. Whereas juror 11 really had to work hard to become a citizen. And that's one of the reasons he clearly came to America is because he gets to actively participate in the system. So there's some interesting stuff with that as well. Um, Juror 9, Joseph Sweeney, he also was in the TV version, The Old Man. Okay. I find him to be very memorable as well. Uh, A lot of his shots are close-up shots. He also pays attention to little details, has some great monologues in this movie. Um, And then Juror 12 is Robert Weber, who is this really talkative, goofy guy. He's the only one to go from guilty to not guilty, back to guilty, and then finally to not guilty. Yeah. Um, so he's also very much the peer pressure one that just doesn't really know what to th- how to think for himself honestly,
2: right. And uh, you kind of bring up uh, a pretty, Most a a pretty important point to this film is that it's very very character driven, right? Uh, And these characters that they have are very very well defined, right? Like you just went through pretty much all of them and explained kind of uh, at a bird's eye level, you know what their characters are and how they operate within within the film, right? That's one of the most important things about this movie. I feel is, I mean, also give the title um, Twelve Angry Men. It's about twelve characters who all kind of play off of each other and all end up coming to the same conclusion at the very end of the story, uh, whether they like it or not, right? So it's that's one of the most important things about this film is that every character that's in the film, that especially those who are in the most important, they have a very important role in the story, and at the same time, their characters are also very well-defined, and the story would not work without them. So that's one of those things where it's interesting that uh, this film spends so much time with its characters that it essentially would not survive if one of them was missing
1: yeah and i'll go ahead and say it i think this is one of the best character driven dramas i've seen yeah oh yeah um the writing is brilliant it absolutely deserved the oscar nomination um and the portrayals the way they deliver their lines these people just really embody these characters like uh, you very rarely see something this well put together mm-hmm. um but something else that i need to draw your attention to listeners is that we are the 13th person in the room right and we are we achieve that through the camera the camera how it moves how it interacts with people that is us the viewer um because the camera notice the camera starts off high and it slowly lowers and the shots tighten Uh, It starts off high because we just don't know these people. We're kind of aloof from them, but we slowly get to know them, and this tension slowly tightens between everyone. Um, There's also more long shots at the beginning, and you'll also notice that roughly half of the edits take place in the last 20 minutes Mm -hmm. where um, a lot of stuff goes on. So um, I got to say the cinematography and editing is – just brilliant and it, it didn't get nominated for either.
2: I know. And that's kind of the funniest thing too, is that it all takes place in essentially, like I said, one scene.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, some of these shots are just really brilliant, um, especially because you'll notice how they place a lot of characters together, but it's almost like they're one person, how mm-hmm. the shoulders are overlapping. It's a parallax view. So when looked at it from one angle, it all looks like they're touching. But if you looked off to the side, you could see they're kind of stacked from behind each other. Right. But just definitely pay attention to how that is played throughout, um, because that's important to also create emotion in us as well. Um, do we feel ganged up on when people are more so in a group? Um, sometimes people are all alone and you can see how the shot pulls out from them. Like, um, when Ed Beagley is going on his racist rant. Oh yeah. I was just actually just bring that up. Yep. Yeah. That's a great scene. And you'll notice there is, um, they talked about it on the special features, um, The people behind the camera were really brilliant with what they are able to do. But there is this very kind of layered deep shot Mm -hmm. of how he is very much alone. And one by one, people physically move away from him because they just don't want to be with him anymore. And then he goes off by himself for a while. So I just got to say that the way this is edited, the way this is shot,
2: I I love it. Yeah, no, that scene is one of my favorites, too, the one you just brought up, is because he, you know, he's essentially... He's essentially, you know, the only character who, at least at this point in the story, is completely prejudiced against the accused, right? The guy who's on trial. Um, He's the one who says stuff like, you know, well, his kind need to be put away anyways um, and is what you would call a racist nowadays, right? Right. And it's kind of one of the first times that everybody in the room, of course, except for him, um, come to the same conclusion, Right. And we see how one by one, each character will stand up from the table and turn their back to him. And essentially it gets to the point where he's the only one by himself at the jury table um, looking at it that way. And then he eventually changes his viewpoint on it um, and walks off by his by himself and everybody else comes back to the table. It's a very interesting scene because it kind of plays out very, very differently from most other things. Because, again, one of the first times that pretty much everyone in the room is sees this the same way. And one of the other things is this movie leaves
1: you with you have to pretty much form your own emotions. The only time that I believe music is in this film is in the beginning
2: and end. During their deliberations there is no music. I think there's a couple of moments where there are. There's like one moment where it's where they play some music. Uh, I think it's when Henry Fonda is over by the um the water fountain thing. But it's like maybe a couple of times maybe during the middle portion, but that's about it. Uh, You're right. Pretty much the biggest moments will happen uh, at the beginning and the end.
1: And it's very interesting because at least it was very startling to me. Mm -hmm. You don't even really think about it, whether it's there or whether it's not there. Yeah. Uh, Most movies seem to be playing music constantly in the background, and sometimes it really works, and then sometimes it's just really overblown. But I do appreciate that this film doesn't have it's kenyan hopkins doing the score he does a great job um it is a very kind of gentle score to it as well um with some very impassioned moments but nevertheless so many scenes don't have any music to influence your emotions it the cinematography the characters the direction is all there just to influence you and it works right exactly you know, one of the other things that this movie made me appreciate is that there are these fail-safes in the justice system. So if the lawyers do a cruddy job, eh, then they aren't going to be the ones to con- to sentence you, the judge isn't ultimately going to be the one either. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a jury. But something that is very interesting is that it's not really a jury of your peers that's what it says in the constitution a jury of your peers but nevertheless these people are not his peers they are probably not his ethnicity judging from what we see of him they're not his neighbors um, because they're constantly putting him down for his socioeconomic situation except for one of the jurors also grew up in a slum so he's the closest thing to he has to a appear but nevertheless I do appreciate that this movie does call attention to that and that is something that Rose and Lumet wanted to portray is that even though the American system can fail sometimes it's not going to fail ultimately Mm -hmm. because of the design of the justice system so they did very much want to make this about the justice system, not just a drama, but show how it works and draw people's attention to that. So it's almost a civics lesson
2: yeah, in yeah, some definitely. ways. Definitely. Um,
1: and you know, Rose actually was on a jury a couple years before writing that. So he sat on a jury and he was like, think i could make this into a movie (laughs) and he
2: did um i personally have never been on a jury have you i was commissioned to be on a jury but i couldn't because i was going to college in another state Uh and so i had to give him the reason (laughs) that i had to tell him or send a letter saying i can't make it because i'm in a i'm going to college in another state and they pardoned me so i I came close one time (laughs) um but i haven't actually set it on jury yet I, I don't ever really want to do it. <laughs> I hear it's pretty boring, and most of the time, I mean, uh, obviously, this film does kind of bring it up as well, with draw number three. Um, you know, for the most part, they're pretty boring, just kind of about, uh, you know, kind of metal, pace, uh, metal cases, um, whether it be like someone's divorce or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I wouldn't think it'd be necessarily, usually wouldn't be as uh, riveting as a, as a murder case as they bring up in this story.
1: Yeah, I know my wife was called up to jury duty and she was, she ultimately was dismissed. But yeah, and it was going to be some kind of murder case. Oh. And it was going to be serious. And we were like, oh, please don't let her have to be on this. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, when they do, you have to go to kind of a screening process to go through it um, because they don't want somebody that's going to be. Very much one way or the other, which right. is kind of funny because then you come to find out that all these people are like bigots for the most part, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. they just don't care. Um, you know what? My I think my dad's been called up for jury duty like five times or more. Okay, just like a crazy amount of times. <laughs> yeah, but he's a pastor, so he he can wear his pastoral like collar and
2: whatnot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, uh, yeah, you can go. <laughs> yeah, I know my mom's been on one. I remember her. Uh, having to go to jury duty once um, years ago. Pretty sure my dad's been on a couple, I would think, but... Yeah, you know that kind of brings up an interesting point, though, I and mean, we kind of mentioned this a, a little bit uh, a little bit ago. But we come into the story as the audience, we come in completely blind to what this guy had done. All we really know at the beginning of the story is that he committed murder, right? And it's left up to the twelve men in the room to explain to us essentially the entire, uh, well, the entire court case up until this point that they've sat and they've experienced for who knows how many hours. So it's kind of interesting that we are dropped into the story uh, with a little context. Uh, outside of that these guys are going to discuss what their choices are for guilty or not guilty for a supposed murderer right and so as the film goes along we get to pick up we we get to pick up more pieces of the story as to how or as to what led to them to be on this case it's kind of an interesting way of going about it um usually they would like just say it up front at least nowadays i would think but not this no they're gonna wait for a while to really explain everything and then at that point you yourself have to put together what the story really is because they don't really just, just flat out tell you, here's what it is in one sentence. It's kind of put into pieces.
1: Yeah, you bring up a good point because most of the time we just watch the court. It's, it's, there's literally like a sub genre, a courtroom drama. Yeah. Of drama. And you, we usually do watch the lawyers duke it out, you know, on the, witnesses get feisty, you can't handle the truth, you know, Mm -hmm. famous Jack Nicholson line from A Few Good Men. Um, So, yeah, right. This is interesting because it's not about the courtroom drama. It's about, well, what happens kind of in between right? um, before the final verdict and before that. So I really do like that aspect of it. And I do believe it plays to the film's strength that we don't know everything going in because we are like these people who think... I mean, okay, it's a murder case. It seems open and shut in the beginning just to all the jurors as well. But nevertheless, there's so much that they don't even know. There's right. so many details that they glossed over or just took at face value. And I really do appreciate that this movie has some active exposition. Exposition. It's not just let me sit here and just data dump something onto you. It's they actively act things out they deliberated about it together it's a very normal discussion that they have but while doing that that informs us as well so we right. um that is something that i i really appreciate because some movies really get ahead of themselves and they mm-hmm. ruin it looking at you thunderball james <laughs> bond movie <laughs> i hate it in movies when we are ahead of the characters and mm-hmm. so far as what we know because at that point It becomes problematic because we know what's going on, whereas the character doesn't, and then we're confused as to why the character doesn't, and then a lot of things are ruined, and we can ultimately just become bored with it. This, we are always going along at the same pace with these characters as far as what's going on.
2: Exactly. And it's one of those things, too, where, you know, while this is very much a courtroom drama, although the the subgenre of courtroom drama wasn't really a thing at the time, um, of course, now it is, uh, this is as much of a courtroom drama as it is a mystery, right? Because, again, we don't know the whole story going into this, um, and we're picking up the pieces as things go along. And so, just like we were talking about, right, it's the thing that really mostly engages you uh, with this story is figuring out what the story really is, right? And that, again, just kind of makes for a really interesting story in how they how they pace it and then also how they reveal all this inf- all of this information. Because like I said before, right, this is very much a the story of the plot of this is pretty much just taking what we didn't see, the actual courtroom part of it, and putting that on trial, right? That's essentially what the core of this film really is, is putting that on trial, but also at the same time trying to understand where everybody who's are in the jury, where they're coming from, and how they change through the course of digging through the information that they have on them. Um, and finding out that what else, what what is there to judge is not necessarily, th- there's not enough information, right? There's not enough information to go one way or the other, even though it seems out front um, and at face value, like you said, a pretty much a closed case at this point.
1: Yeah, and you bring up a good point about the pacing of this movie. It's 96 minutes, but so much happens. Yeah, oh yeah. In an hour and 36 minutes, And the pacing is achieved through this really great usage of these characters time, because if it's all about deliberation, I think it could get boring, Mm -hmm. but nevertheless, it's not because we do feel the passage of time because they take bathroom breaks, they stand up and look out the window, they talk about the upcoming baseball game, what they do for work, what's going on in their kids lives. There's a there's a change in the weather, which also helps us feel movement of time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a semi wardrobe change as things get hotter. Characters will take off their jacket, they'll roll up their sleeves. So these little things all add up together. I think to really help us feel the movement of time without making us feel bored. Yeah, no, oh, exactly, exactly. And the same with the camera work as well. There's like a mix of static and tracking shots. And it really does make us feel like we're moving in the room with them. We're not just sitting still on the couch watching this play out. We are going around to different characters. uh, It's a really small set, but they make great use of all facets of it
2: oh yeah no you really do get to feel how tight that room is especially mm-hmm. the longer it goes the and the higher the tension builds yeah. you really do get to feel how small that room really is right But well but you know while it is small there's a lot of change happening in this room all at the same time right and it's kind of it's really interesting how they end up doing that um, because I it, don't really see that too often
1: and the other thing is sometimes we talk about in these movies with these reviews that well, you know, they really do stray off of the plot. Uh, This really had nothing to do with it. I really wish they would have cut this out or cut this down. There are seemingly extraneous scenes in this movie of conversation that has nothing to do with the core plot. Right. But you realize that this has everything to do with making connection with these characters. We are able to briefly interact with the humanity of these people, and I think that's what makes... The plot is not figuring out whether this person is innocent or guilty. While Alan brought up the great point, this is also a mystery without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. It's still a mystery, but nevertheless, it's about these characters overcoming their own you know, prejudices, their own thoughts about certain things, looking at it in new ways and helping us evaluate things in new ways as well. So I never found any of these little bathroom breaks or... Side conversations to be boring. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny because one of the first conversations we have is with juror number three, and I think it's juror two, um, whoever is on his first. This is like his first time being on yep. a jury. Yeah, um, we get to see. You know, these two are pretty much opposite, right? Um, because juror number three has been on plenty of uh, of juries, and he does have a. He does bring up the. He does have a son. Um, and it, like you said, it's kind of seemingly, at least at the time, kind of a throwaway conversation. Like, why are we lingering on this at all? Right. It's not <laughs> like that big of a deal. But you find out later um, that, that, Son of his, we find out through a couple of scenes that there was a falling up between the two of them, and then that also ends up becoming the catalyst for his character to finally change at the very end of the story. Um, to agree with everybody after being the only one left around to say he's still guilty, to change his uh, the change's vote and say that he is guilt, he is not guilty. Um, because he does remember what happened to his son, so he has he's probably the biggest character who has probably the most emotional attachment to the one who's being accused, to the one who's on trial, but he just doesn't realize it until the very end of the story.
1: And I do think that brings up the point of pride is hard to let go. Mm-hmm. Even if it is in our personal life and it has nothing to do with the outside, you know, situation that we're currently dealing with. Nevertheless, as humans, we bring in our own personal history into our work, into our tasks. And that brings up the point of, You have to differentiate those things. You cannot mix too much of your life into what's supposed to be professional. And these characters, Lee J. Cobb portrays it perfectly. By the way, where is his best actor or best supporting (laughs) character nomination? Exactly, yeah. I do think this movie got some great nominations, but personally, I think it was really short shrift with how many nominations it could have gotten. Um, It also brings up the point of, are we, it makes us ask ourselves, are we apathetic to life in order for our own to not be lightly inconvenienced? Mm-hmm. Um, believe us, juror seven, Jack Ward, he is like, I really want to get to this baseball game. And it's like, um, well, we're about to make, we're about to see if like a 16 year old dies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or not. Um, yeah. and then we see, um, juror uh, like i don't know juror 12 the one who's he's always trying like a box of cereal playing Mm -hmm. tic-tac-toe and i love that scene where henry fonda pulls it off and he's like this is not a game this is literally not a game yeah um it does make us ask those questions are we ready to just move on out of here because my life is in the way you know i i actually have thought about that a lot um People are sometimes like, it's not what I want to do, so I'm just not going to do it, Mm -hmm. even though it's very important to other people that we care about um i know i've probably been there in my life but i i am always shocked by those kind of people honestly
2: yeah and it's one of those things too where uh, you know you mentioned pride is a hard thing to let go of and i would say that's absolutely correct but at the same time i think that each character here brings something to the table that they have to let go of Mm -hmm. in order to turn to the other side and realize you know the i guess the reality of the situation that is you know there isn't enough information here to really condemn this guy or really to put him to death right and it, of course, it depends on character, from character to character, like, well, with, with number 12, he's kind of, he feels like he's all over the place, right? He's going with the flow and he realizes that he has to, you know, make a decision he can't just let people make it for him, right? Or you have um, the other, I forget i forget what jury number he is, but it's the guy who just got his citizenship. Oh, yeah. um, he has to realize that, you know, while he is finally a citizen, he can now, you know, make a decision as a citizen, right? So I think that each character that's in the story has something that they have to get over in order to, uh, in order to change from, oh, he's guilty to, oh, he's not guilty. And sometimes it might be like with jury number 12, it might not be just that he has to get over something to make to get over um, what the decision actually is for him but actually to make the decision and like be okay with that decision and not you know make somebody else make it for him
1: now I gotta ask did did you write down any lines that you really liked
2: I think I had a few but uh, I'll have to go looking for them but yeah I think I have a few
1: there's some great lines that I really enjoyed there are, um, there are. this isn't Sunday we don't need a sermon mm-hmm. you keep coming in with these bright sayings why not send them into the paper they pay $3 a piece yep um I thought it was hilarious when he's like, "What? I don't remember what he says." Doesn't not speak good English, and then the guy whose English is not his first language mm-hmm. says, "Doesn't speak good English." Like he yep. corrects him. Yep.
2: Uh, I love when that's no. That's the guy who has the prejudice. That's uh, I forget the journal, but he's the guy who you know is, yes. is he was like who has that scene where everyone just walks away from him. It's yeah, yeah. That is kind of it is kind of ironic. It is ironic, especially because he's
1: putting somebody that's not his same ethnicity down for not being able to kind of speak properly, speak the American way. He doesn't even do it. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the line. Got a good laugh out of me when um, Lee J Cobb yells out, what is it? Love your underprivileged brother week. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This was a great line when um, I want to say it was juror 11, who is the naturalized citizen says, beg pardon. And then somebody comes back with saying, uh, "What are you so polite about?" And then he says, "For the same reason
2: you are not. It's the way I was brought up." Mm-hmm. I was like, "Ooh, burn!" Yeah, yeah, no, there are some like there are some lines in here where you know this happens more than once, especially with Juror Number Three, where uh, they'll get so fired up about something and then then they'll just say something and realize that it's the complete opposite or that that what they said is not even correct. You know, like for example. Um, there's a scene where they're talking, they're trying, they're discussing, like, you know, the old man that says that he saw, uh, the kid run down the stairs, right? Uh, there's a scene where they were finally bickering over, you know, who, about how we got there and how much time he actually said that, you know, he took him to get from his room to the stairs or, you know, whatever. Um, he says that, uh, he's an old man. How could he be positive about anything? And then- Yep. He just stops and then the whole the whole mood just all of a sudden changes because <laughs> you know, now they begin to realize again, you know, that's something that is very uh questionable in this case. That was a great
1: part in the movie mm-hmm. where basically proves his own basically proves the point they're trying to make.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And that happens more than once. That's just one example, but that happens more uh, than once. Yeah.
1: Um, I like when the when the guy throws the paper into the fan Mm -hmm. and then it bops the old man on the head yeah and he says that's that's a darn stupid thing to do he doesn't say darn but he does say that i thought that was so funny yeah (laughs) perks up he's like that's a darn stupid thing to do Mm -hmm. um you know speaking of like favorite scenes i did write down a couple that i i just think they're like i won't go through them all as alan can see we've already talked about a couple of them but there's just scenes that it's just like you're not gonna forget in this movie, I think. And for me, the first one comes 30 minutes in with the big exciting twist that Henry Fonda has the same knife right? as that. And it's a very unique knife, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, he has it too.
2: Yeah, no, that that was a scene where uh, that, I think that's like one of the biggest moments where things really start to change. Right. And that, that's like at the very beginning of the story, too, because everyone's just, you know, they're all arguing with number uh, with juror number eight mm-hmm. with everything. And no one's really on his side, you know, not like solidly on his side, you know. Um, and that's when when he pulls out that switchblade as the exact same one. Um, and he did break the law to do that. Um, it, that's when things really start to change. Um, and you can realize that this is a case where it's not all cut and dry like it seems to be at the very beginning.
1: Yeah, the other scenes that I liked was um, when Juror Nine gives his monologue about how nobody really understands the old man, the forgotten man. Mm-hmm. That was a great uh, monologue, and how the camera just like slowly pushes in on him. Um, also, when Juror Four starts to sweat, yeah, when he's finally caught in his own kind of conundrum, he can't remember the movies right that he saw. Um, I think one of the probably most tense scenes of the movie is the knife demonstration scene. Yeah. Um, When Lee J. Cobb is, we you think he's about to stab Henry Fonda, and it's actually much more intense in the TV version. Okay. Because instead of people reacting when he raises his hand, people react when he brings the knife down centimeters from his chest. Oh, man. Hmm. It's much better in the TV one, actually, but nevertheless, yeah. it's Every, I I was shocked too when we saw it. Yeah, because you know he probably wants to stab him. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, I think I also forgot to mention the racist rant is um, one take.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're right. It is. Yeah, that's that's why I mentioned it earlier on It's one of my favorite scenes. Is mm-hmm. that it? Just it. You do get to see the camera just slow, kind of slowly pulls out to show all the room, and eventually he's like the only one at the table. Yeah,
1: and of course one of the final scenes is when juror three is the last one to break Mm -hmm. he's like feels like a trapped animal even though he's the one that's made his own cage he's the one that's put him in his own prison yeah it's a great shot of all of the jurors looking at him and then he really gives this desperate monologue about how everything has been twisted and turned and he rips up the picture of his son and then he starts crying Um, that and the oscar goes to i mean that's what i'm thinking (laughs) right there but then ultimately he says not guilty it's
0: really powerful.
2: Yeah, it's that scene where you know he finally realizes, you know, he he puts himself in the same place as the guy who's being tried, right? Um we also never get a name for it, I just realized. Um, we, he puts yep. himself in the same place because again, he has a son, and him and his son had a falling out at one point. Um, and it's a very it's it's similar it's a similar situation. It's not the exact same, obviously, because he's still alive. Um, but it's a similar situation, and he realizes that after he rips up the picture with with his son, I, f- I don't have it written down, but the line is something to the effect of you know you spend so much time on raising children, and you know they kind of come out not the way that you wanted them to. And then when once he rips up the picture, he realizes how important his son re- really was to him, and and stuff you know that's that's definitely one of the best scenes is because he's he's in the exact same situation and he's so you can call him almost jaded at this point because he's had so many he's been on so many juries on that it's just that whatever one for him it's another one of these is uh, essentially how he views it and then it's once he finally finds himself finds out that he's in the front the exact same situation almost um that he finally realizes how you know important something like this actually is
1: and that's another important point that you brought up is Um, earlier in what you were saying about how we never find out the young man's name Mm -hmm. Uh, and we don't find out anyone's name except for juror eight is davis and nine is McCardle. yeah those are the only names that we get of the characters which is at the very end of the story too and you know what it's kind of funny thinking back because just about a month ago or something
2: we reviewed tenant Mm-hmm. And those characters didn't really have names either. That's true, especially the main character who was named protagonist. And protagonist. that was all I think they ever said his name either. So, no. yeah.
1: Never. He said protagonist about 1200 times. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, you know, not knowing these characters' names never, never hinders me from connecting with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that is very hard to pull off. Very hard to pull off when you don't have a name for someone to connect with them, because that's the usually the almost the first point of connection we make with people is ask them what their name is. Right. Um, But nevertheless, these people never. uh, And I think that's an important point that they focus on at the very end is only till after they've kind of gone through this like crazy bonding experience of mm-hmm. like hanging like weighing someone's life do only these two people ask each other's names right no one else cares everybody else just walks off on their own changed but probably never wanting to see each other
0: again oh yeah
2: yeah and it's one of those things too because you know while they don't have names you know we don't remember them by the names right we remember them by their own personalities oh very good point um yeah, yeah because th- the, even in the imdb credits they're all just Juro one through twelve that, that's about as far as it goes right Right. So we remember them, these characters, by their names. not or Sorry, remember them by their personalities, not by their names. Which only by two characters are we actually ever given their names. Even the guy who's on trial, we don't even get his name either, like I mentioned.
1: Mm-mm. The only thing that I was kind of disappointed about is Juror 6. I feel like is kind of mostly pointless of all of the characters. He's given very little to do. Um he does offer kind of the slick little line in the bathroom talking about like, I I never do much supposing I leave that up to my boss, but Mm -hmm. suppose if he is guilty and you're persuading us all that he's innocent. Okay. Good moral question to think about. Um, He does kind of come across though, as like the hardline conscience of the group, um, which I guess I kind of like how he is in a way kind of the literal dividing line, which are six where everybody before him is either kind of too passionate or too analytical about mm-hmm. things. Whereas everybody else after him is more thoughtful um, in ways I, that doesn't like completely work, but nevertheless he more is this kind of like hardline conscience where he threatens people. Like if you talk that way to an old man, again, I'm just going to lay you out right right here. Um, and he really is this tough blue collar worker, um, nevertheless, I just feel like, um, oh, okay, he does also offer some insight as to the noise of the L train. I don't know. What do you think about his character? He's the one that I'm always just forgetting about.
2: No, I'm absolutely with you. Uh, Juror six is always the one where I'm just like, Oh yeah, that guy. Right. When i really sit down and think about it. So I I'm with you. I think that Juror six is probably the most forgettable out of this group but at the same time you know it's not like it's that big of a deal it feels more of a nitpick than anything else because he, uh, these even his character is still very his personality is still very well defined mm-hmm. right yeah um but in terms of like who you remember who el- who else you remember also with him he's probably the one that i forget about the most yeah um the
1: other it's more of a nitpick but i do feel like sometimes The dialogue can be a bit on the nose, especially when talking about justice and democracy. It's few and far between, but nevertheless, it's pretty much straight up laid out for us. It Mm -hmm. mostly comes from uh, Juror Eleven, who is the naturalized citizen. Uh, I don't know. Did any of that stick
2: out to you? Not really, no. Not for me. Okay. Yeah, I guess you're right. Um, You mentioned this earlier, but- yeah, when the rain does start coming down, that must be the mid, that must be the midpoint of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, because they also take a vote, that, Like I think, around the same time or, like, or just before it, and there are six and six. Um, the six for and six against. So, And then, of course, the rain comes down, and um, that's when things really start to change. And, of course, tensions raise and whatnot. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think when the rain comes, it is just about halfway. I think that would be the midpoint of the story.
1: Yeah, and we've talked about before how... Water, no matter its form, is always seen as kind of a baptismal thing. Mm -hmm. The characters are about to undergo a transformation of sorts, and they do. And it is a way for tensions to somewhat simmer down, but also for tensions to rise up as well. Because people don't always want to have that break. They don't always want to Mm -hmm. have that relief. They want to fight against it. We primarily see that through Juror 3. And... I think it's after the rain is when Juror 4 starts to sweat as well, or maybe that doesn't even make sense. I, I don't know. Um, nevertheless, you're right, Alan. That is a kind of a great scene, and you also can notice, as I've mentioned previously, when they walk out, the pavement is wet, everything's wet. It's mm-hmm. a different world than when they went in.
2: Right, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Juror number 3 is the last one we see come out of the courtroom, and he's like slowly walking down the stairs, and he's like throwing the last characters that we see before it fades to black.
1: Yeah, you're probably right. Um, Yeah, some people really just book it out of there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's only the small conversation between Juror 8 and 9. And yeah, um, I think the one that'll probably go out most change is Juror 3, which that's why I say Lee J. Cobb is for me probably the most memorable part of this movie as far as characters
0: go.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: I agree. And, you know, it is important to note that Juror 8 has compassion for juror three when no one else did everybody just kind of leaves and those were the two that were at odds with each other the most yeah uh it's a really nice scene at the end um where he puts his helps him put his coat on which you would think juror three is like i can do it myself like back off i don't need it but he allows him to do it and i think that's a really touching scene um it was actually going to be different in the original script oh wasn't going to be as nice (laughs) (laughs) so in the original script juror three Picks up the knife, looks at it, um, and while walking out of the room, he turns back and he just angrily throws the knife down. Hmm. And that's the end of the movie as he walks out. So you're left to wonder: Would it be a hung jury? Right. You're left to wonder: Is um, that really? Is it going to have a happy ending? Is it not? The studio looked at it and they're like, <laughs> "They're like, what? Yeah, you put us on this emotional roller coaster, and there's really not much resolution to it. So that's, I'm thankful that's not the ending that we got.
2: I would love to see what that, how they would have handled that, um, just to see how it would, like, you know, maybe just like an alternate ending, how mm. it would have ended if they went, if they went down this route, you know, how would they change the story? I would love to see that that on the screen, yeah, um, just out of curiosity, because so that's a really interesting way to end, way to end it. It is, it is very interesting in some movies that the
1: ambiguity definitely works. Um, The only movie I can think that's like super ambiguous that takes you through something really emotional. Um, There's there's lots of them. I'm thinking of Shutter Island. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you seen Shutter Island? Yeah, Yeah, I watched it at your house. Oh, okay. (laughs) Anyways, that is another kind of weird ending that leaves you feeling weird. I don't think I would feel as weird with this one, but... Sometimes the ambiguity works, mm-hmm. um, but nevertheless, I'm personally glad it's not there. I would like to see it as an alternate ending. Yeah.
2: Um, they don't really do those back in the day. They didn't really do those back then, but yeah, it would, be, it would be interesting to see. The closest
1: thing that you'll get to it is the TV version leaves a little room for doubt as to whether that it will be a hung jury okay. or whether they will exonerate- the young man because there still is some anger to juror three and he is the last one out and that's just how it ends um which of course when you're watching on TV you know that's pretty shocking because yeah, um, oh, mostly everything back then was pretty much a happy ending <laughs> right yeah <laughs> it seems like so without that kind of resolution reginald rose did that on purpose because he wanted you to personally grapple with what would you do in mm-hmm. that situation he's not going to just give you the ending you got to figure it out yeah well alan what is your rating and recommendation for 12 angry
2: men One of the questions that I left with when I finished this, this time especially, is the question of like, you know, we have a story about 12. Angry men. <laughs> but who is the main character, right? You could probably say, oh, it's probably juror number and number eight. And maybe you could say, oh, well, it's juror number three, because he goes through the most significant change, right? And both those answers, the way that you look at it might be true, but I also think that the main character um is very much, you know, the the audience themselves, right? Um, because they're the ones who really get to experience this whole story, but, you know, who, how they change is up to them, right? While, some, while all of the characters in the story do go through some kind of change in terms of them being the main character, one could see it as, you know, the audience themselves. But that aside, this is very much a character-driven story to a T, Right, where there were essentially would be no story if one or all of these characters weren't the way that they are here. And that's kind of one of the things that I absolutely love about it is because it's about, you know, the personalities about these characters that make them who they are, and that we don't need names to know who these characters are when we leave this movie. And so. One of the things that you know is shocking from seeing Twelve Angry Men is just how tight and how and, and how rounded these characters end up being when you finally do finish the movie, and how much of a change they go through, and how each one of them has to do something, have to give up something, or change what their viewpoint is by the end of the story in order for them to all come to some kind of agreement. Right? They have to. They have to change um, if they want to, you know, make any kind of decision. And that's what makes this so intriguing is how all 12 of these characters play off of each other um, with the audience being the one who's prone to the spectator of this event. And it's, it's it starts off seemingly, you know, whatever. It's just a jury case, you know, or it's just a case. You're on the jury here. It's not that big of a deal at first. That is until juror eight decides that, well, there's something more here if you're putting a man's life at stake. So, yeah, at the end of the story or at the end of the day, 12 Angry Men a great film. And if you haven't seen it, uh, definitely check it out because it's one of those where it leaves you with a lot to think about um, more than just, you know, what the film displays. And that's one of the things I, I still find enjoyable about it is, you know, left, left leaving it with you, leaving it you with something, something to think about. So, yeah, at the end of the day, I want to say 12 Angry Men's a uh, 10 out of 10 from me and I most definitely recommend
1: it's hard to understate the importance 12 Angry Men plays in our current TV and film landscape. Without the television drama, we wouldn't have the movie. And without the movie, what we know as intimate dramas may have taken much longer to come to fruition. And we may have even lost out on some of the greats that followed. Clearly there were film and television dramas before 12 Angry Men, but what makes this film unique is that once the jurors resigned to their deliberation, It's merely a stage play drama from here on out. This melding of the play, the stage play with the screenplay may be showcased nowhere better but here. Even if you don't like black and white movies, I urge you to give this one a chance because it's not old fashioned or outdated, or least of all boring. The themes presented here along with the multitude of messages will always be relevant because they speak to different parts of the human and societal conditions. All of this is brought to life through compelling acting, cinematography, sound, and set design. In fact, the black and white is a strength to this film, because it ironically depicts not everything is clear-cut. Not everything is black and white. 12 Angry Men receives 10 stars out of 10, with my highest recommendation. Well, is there a sequel? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, okay, well, sort of? Sort of, okay. Sort of, not really. (laughs) (laughs) So there this is has been adapted to a stage play. Makes it's, sense? It's been done multiple times. Yeah.
2: I mean it's essentially a stage play already, but yeah.
1: So
0: speaking
1: of the exorcist earlier, mm-hmm. director William Friedkin adapted this for TV in 1997.
2: I did see that that there's a TV movie of the same name. Yep. Um I was curious about it. I um, wanted to watch it, but
1: yeah. I, I didn't want to rent it maybe someday yeah <laughs> it's not streaming anywhere so um I didn't rent it but it is it is curious I knew some of the actors particularly Jack Lemon okay isn't it I love Jack Lemon um I, I don't know other people that I've seen in it are there as well um and then there's actually a Russian version hmm. came out in 2007 by Nikita uh, Mikolov.
2: uh called 12 that's it 12. Hmm. When did that one release? Is two, it more modern? Two thousand seven. yeah that's about I'm a bit more modern than that. Makes sense why
1: we call it twelve. Hmm. Um, haven't seen that one either, and it's not streaming on anything I subscribe to. Gotcha. So yeah. I'd definitely be curious to check both of those movies out, and yeah, I'll definitely try to get around to those. Uh, uh you know what? When movies are this great, you just don't touch it. Yeah. Don't remake *Gone with the Wind*. Don't remake *Alien*. Don't remake The Empire Strikes Back. Don't mm-hmm. remake Raiders of, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Just don't do it.
2: Yeah. It's just one of those where it's just like, it's just best just to leave it as it is. Because it already is a staple in, in film history. And trying to top that, it's going to just end in, uh, in disaster. <laughs> Speaking of um, remakes that shouldn't have been done. Uh-oh. So, uh...
1: Well, I'll keep listeners in suspense. I first want to know, Alan, um, what are your other film or TV
2: recommendations? So I'm gonna recommend Casablanca. Um we it's a very much a lighter film than <laughs> this one is. Even but, though it deals with Nazi persecution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's this is true. It's very much it's very it's a lot more lighthearted than this one is. This one's yeah. a bit heavier. Yes. But uh it does kind of deal with, you know, an ethical question or a moral question um and when when you watch it. So yeah, that's what I'm going to recommend. And there also, it's also Black and White. It came out about 10 years before this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's still one that uh, I think is similar. And, of course, also considered one of the greats.
1: Best picture of the year.
2: Exactly. And yeah. I'm also going to recommend Citizen Kane. Don't yeah. really say too much else. Um, but, yeah.
1: We haven't reviewed Citizen
0: Kane, have we? No, we haven't. Oh. That's one of the
2: ones we haven't done yet for... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why we haven't, but yeah, we haven't. Oh, uh, Some so certain movies I get a little
1: scared to review. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just so daunting, but I uh, love Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Great, great recommendations. Um, my recommendations are Witness for the Prosecution. Okay. It actually came out two months before this movie. Oh, okay. And it is a straight up courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. Um, it was nominated for six Oscars, including... Um, best picture of the year and best director, so it was directly competing with this movie. Ooh! Um, unfortunately, Witness for the Prosecution didn't win anything. <laughs> gotcha. Um, that movie is fantastic and has some crazy twists you won't see coming. My other recommendation is Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Ooh, that's a good. That's a good one. And the reason I am recommending that is because it is a riveting drama that. Discusses questions of morality. Discusses mm-hmm. questions of life and death, and it all takes place in one sitting, save for
2: the opening shot. Right. So yeah, that that's a great recommendation. Um, and that one also actually that one was based off of a stage play, whereas this one ended up becoming a stage play. Well,
1: I think uh, I think this has been a really good discussion. And yeah, I'm really glad that we got to do it. So not too often do we get to go back and review older movies because and we we have we've reviewed a number of older movies Mm -hmm. alan talked about casablanca we have reviewed that one link is in the description below for you to check out that review but um yeah i'm really glad we got to go back to this older movie and hopefully listeners if you haven't seen it hopefully we piqued your interest to go and check this movie out so hopefully we turned on a whole new generation of fans for this movie. I think this one's really timeless. So nevertheless, I'm really happy. We did get to really go through this. It's like I said, at the beginning, this has been, there's been different times in my life where I've just watched the movie and that's become my favorite. started with King Kong. Mm -hmm. It came on with secondhand lines and then 12 angry men as well. There's a couple others like equilibrium hotel Rwanda Legend of the Fall. Those that's probably what I'll end up choosing for my um birthday picks here in the future going through those movies reevaluating why they were my favorites at the time. So, Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, the question after the show is what is your favorite part about 12 Angry Men? Okay, as for next week,
2: Schedule keeps changing, and we haven't talked about it. Yeah, we don't know. We were going to do <laughs> uh, the Kingsman trilogy. and That is, until they moved Kingsman. I
1: think it was even going to be something
2: else before it, that. It was. I think it was going to be... I forget what it was going to be. I don't. Maybe, know. though, I think this was going to be the week of Bill and Ted. Uh, and then we <laughs> moved it up because Kingsman was coming out. So, yeah, we'll see what happens next week. Uh, not even we know what's happening next week. Um, It's... Uh,
1: the schedule is ready alan and i have to talk about it yeah it's i replaced it with something but we have to talk about it first because uh yeah the schedule keeps changing every week because movies keep moving so Mm -hmm. nevertheless it's going to be here spoiler alert it might be king kong versus godzilla Mm -hmm. we might just go ahead and start on that since there's kind of a lot to do but um Definitely subscribe so you'll know what it is actually going to be. Yeah. Luckily,
2: um, you'll know it'll be in the description below what will be happening next week. By the time of recording, we don't know. We don't know because, like we
1: said, it keeps changing. So very mm-hmm. well something weird could happen and we could have the Matrix Four <laughs> released next week. We have to jump on it. Exactly. Probably not gonna happen, but never say never with what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> right now. Yeah. But yeah, check in the description below and you'll definitely know absolutely what is coming next week. But for now... For now, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So definitely make sure to subscribe. If you are listening on um, Apple Podcasts, make sure to give us five stars. Leave a short written review that really does help us get noticed in the rankings. If you're not listening there, no matter where, give us those five stars. That is an absolutely easy great free way to support us we really helps us out and that does help us reach our 2021 goal of being verified critics on Rotten Tomatoes um and while you are looking in the description below um we do have links to all of the podcasts that we're on we are on all major podcast platforms links to our social media pages to our official website to our patreon page where you can subscribe and get great bonus content interact with us personally over there that's content that you are able to keep and enjoy um so Uh, All kinds of great stuff in the description below. If there's any part of the podcast you want to go back to, timestamps are also down there. Timestamps for every episode for probably going on a year now at least. So we were really trying to make the description not just a boring place with nominal information, but with just um, information to help connect you with us further, help make your experience here at Silver Screen Guide very seamless and intuitive. So listeners, we really appreciate your support. We appreciate all of the birthday wishes. For me, I know just have come flooding in. (laughs) You are so happy about my birthday, (laughs) but nevertheless uh, very happy to review this
0: movie and we look forward to seeing you next week So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.
1: It's a downward angle, and it's off to the side of the pillars, mm-hmm. and um, from the stagger least one of the beginning. What in the
2: world? <laughs> Wow. Okay, I don't know what that means. So, <laughs> yeah. um, because and of course, these two characters juror three and juror eight are complete opposites of each other, right? right. And so it makes sense. Um, but you know, we do get to see. Where was I going with this? Uh, hmm. I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh no.